Hi, I'm Joaquin Evans, co-senior leader of Bethel Austin. I pray that Jesus ministers to you through today's message and that you are blessed deeply. If you're encouraged, please like and subscribe so you can stay up to date with all of our weekly sermons. Enjoy the message. All right, so this morning, I'm not going to give you my title because uh, I kind of want this message to kind of work its way into the title, but I've got a great title. Just let you guys know that. Um, but I want to start off, I, I've shared a little bit about this in a couple different messages, including last week, but there's a reason that I want to start off with it. You know, this morning we were sing, singing, holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty. Beautiful words in that song out of the book of Revelation, and you see that there are four living creatures in heaven, that they declare that, and every time they de declare it, the elders Every time they do it, the elders throw their crowns before Jesus and fall down. And it's interesting, it says that's happening 24-7. And I don't know if you've ever been in a moment, most of you I'm sure have, a moment of a worship song, you're like, whoa, that was good, rewind. That was good, rewind. And then you listen to that, maybe just a portion of that song or whatever, and you're like, man, I wish the worship team was hearing God and they would keep that going, you know? But you listen to it over and over. Why? It's one of those moments where the, where the elders are in one of these moments in all eternity for 24-7. Yeah. They sit in a moment where it's like, they did it again, throw the crowns down at the feet. For eternity, these these elders are doing this, and the four living creatures keep saying, holy, holy, holy. And I have did a couple messages on this, but holiness, the way it's often defined in church, or the way the filter it goes through, is just a list of things you're not supposed to do. If I do that, then I'm holy. You know, if I don't do that, I'm holy. Um, or if I'm doing certain things, that makes me holy. But, but holiness, yes, there are things when we're walking in holiness that we don't do, and there are things that we do, but really holiness is defined as the utter uniqueness of God. Um, it's not just a list of don'ts. Holiness, the word means utter, it's that utter uniqueness or the otherness of God. In other words, he's so different from anything else that there is. There is, there is, there is no one like God. Even the angelic beings are amazed at him. Even the four living creatures that I don't know what those things look like, but, it, well, they, we do have a description of what they look like in the Bible, and, but I can't quantify it because it's too weird and wild. Yeah. Yeah. But, and, and you go, man, those, they're different. That's different than anything that I could ever think or imagine. Well, God's way different than that. They're amazed by him. They declare, other, other, other is the Lord God Almighty. He's utterly unique, utter unique, utter unique, utter unique is the Lord God Almighty is what they're declaring. You are so different than anything that there is. There is no one like you. And so they're declaring this. And so he is a being that is not determined by anything outside of himself. He's completely unique. He's completely other. He is his own category. And so that's who... God is. He is his own category. And, and Job in uh, chapter 26 of Job in verse 14, he, Job says this. There's this description that Job gives of God. And then he says at the end of it, 
Behold, these are the outskirts of his ways, and how small a whisper do we hear of him, but the thunder of his power, who can understand? And I would submit to you guys this morning that what we've experienced of God is merely the outskirts of who he is. It's going to take all eternity for us to discover just who he is and just how utter unique that he is. And Job had this moment of revelation, but the thunder of his power, who can understand? He is so completely different. He is so completely awesome. He is so completely other. That is God. I love the old song, you are beautiful beyond description, too marvelous for words, too wonderful for comprehension, like nothing ever seen or heard. Who can grasp your infinite wisdom? Who can fathom the depths of your love? You are beautiful beyond description, majesty enthroned above. I stand, I stand in awe of you. And I pray this morning that we have a revelation of his otherness. When we have that revelation, it changes everything. It changes our worship. It changes what we do during the week. It changes everything that we are doing. When we have a revelation of the utter uniqueness of God. Amen. And what I spoke about last week is that when we talk about sin, sin is anything that is out of alignment with his otherness. Sin or his holiness. Um, if you could define unholiness, it'd be anything that's out of line with that. It's to be outside of his holiness is to be under the dominion of sin. And the reality is, as believers who have trusted in Jesus, we've been brought into his otherness. And we are being transformed into what? His likeness. We're being made holy like he is holy. We are being made unique like he is unique. Amen. And so sin, though, is something completely foreign to God. And if you were here last Saturday, this may feel like a repeat. I promise I'm going somewhere else with this today. But, but sin, sin is completely foreign to God. He, he had never sinned. In fact, again, the definition of sin would be anything outside of him. Anything that's different from him, that, that would be, essentially, that would be where the sin category would be. And so um, it's completely foreign to God. He had never, I mean, if you could think of it this way, God if there's anything God could not really conceptualize in experience, it would be sin because it was the opposite of who he was. Yet Jesus took on our sin. And when you talk about the cross, I want to just talk about the cross for a minute here, but there was immense physical suffering at the cross. And I had this vision of this about I don't know, 20 years ago, 25 years ago. I'm old enough, I've lost, time, I've lost track of time. But it happens, guys, believe me. You're like, you know, way, you know, way back there. And um, I, I keep telling people, I'm like, you know, we've lived in office, Austin for like 10 years, but it's, what, 15 years or something like that? 17. See, I, I told you, I already lost track again. I thought I had it right. So you lose track. But, but Jesus, he, he suffered 
immensely on the cross. And the Romans designed the cross to, to, to be an instrument of death that was maximum shame and maximum pain. That's what it was designed. It was, it, was, it was not what you wanted to be sentenced to death on was death on a cross. Not that there's a good way to die, but that's the, definitely the one that you didn't want. But Jesus was sentenced to die on a cross. We know this, and we know that he suffered physically. And um, I, I was thinking the other day about the ways that he shed his blood. So he sweated blood in the, the Garden of Gethsemane. So intense was this moment that he was actually sweating blood. Um, the stripes on his back from the, the whipping post, there's blood that was shed. He was bruised and he suffered internal bleeding as his, he's being beaten. And then they put a crown of thorns on his head. And again, there's blood that's streaming from his head. And then his hands were pierced and his feet were pierced. So again, there's physical suffering, this blood. And then we know at the end, they they ran a spear into his side, and we know there that blood and water came out. And so Jesus suffered immensely on the cross physically. And I think it's important to understand that, that he did suffer physically on the cross, and he did it for us. But I think what was more intense in, in this vision that I had was the spiritual transaction that was taking place, the spiritual suffering, if you could call it that, that was taking place. I saw 2 Corinthians 5.21, and I'll just read it to you really quickly. For our sake, he made him who knew no sin to be sin, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. And so we see here in this passage that for our sake, he who knew no sin... Sin was completely foreign to him. Sin was completely outside of who he was. Like I said earlier, it was in a completely different category from who he was. Yet, for our sake, it says that he who knew no sin, speaking of Jesus on the cross, became, became sin in that moment. In other words, all the sin of the world was put on Jesus in that moment. He never sinned yet he took all of our sins upon him. And this was an immense suffering. When I had this vision and I began to see this happening, I'm seeing this pure, perfect, pure, holy God on the cross and all the dirt and filth of the world is being put on him. If you could imagine what that was like, that he who knew no sin became sin. And when I saw it, I, I literally screamed at the top of my lungs for about an hour. Because so intense was this transaction that was happening. And I think what I screamed even more for was I realized that it was my own sin. It was my own sin that was being placed upon him. It was personalized. It wasn't just the sins of the world. It was my sin that he took on. All the filth, everything that I ever did, everything that I ever would do, Jesus took it for me on the cross. And it was completely foreign and a completely against his nature. Yet he was willing to sit there with all of that thing, which was completely foreign to him, completely against him and take it on himself. And that's power right there that he would do that. So it was an immense price. And Jesus paid the price for our salvation in full. And we should contemplate that price every day. 
And we should live a life worthy to the call that which we've been called because of the price. We can't pay the price, but we can live in it. We can live with a heart of thanksgiving and a heart of gratitude because of the price that Jesus paid. And we can align our life in a way that says, I acknowledge, I acknowledge and I worship you because of the price that you paid. And all my life I give to you, all my life I surrender to you because you are worthy. Amen? And now I'm kind of diverting into my message here, but... The word passion. So the early church in some, somewhere around second century, um, they began to refer to the suffering of Jesus, Gethsemane, all the way up through the cross as the passion. And uh, the Latin word for that is pati, or in East Texas, we would say patty. I have, listen, I have so much trouble with Latin and Greek because it all goes through my East Texas. I, I fight it. Like, I, if, when I'm gone one day, if anybody ever gets my notes from Stacy, you're going to be like, what is that? Because I do my own phonetic spelling so that I'll say it right. <laughs> I'm like, don't say patty. Do not say patty. 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 If I say Patty, please, okay, it happens. But uh, that word means to suffer. So passion, one of, part of its meaning is to suffer. The other, and I know that we use the word passion different ways um, today, but I want to really focus in on, on this particular aspect of passion. Um, it can also mean a strong and an intractable or barely controllable emotion or inclination with respect to a particular person or thing. And so we know that there could be a strong desire or strong emotion with passion. And, and it, can, it can denote passion for things that aren't good or passion that, that, that things that are good. But I want, us to, I want us to bring it through the filter of what the early church saw, which was, was that the passion described suffering or the suffering of Jesus. And if you combine these two things together, it's, it's really when we talk about passion, it's this strong emotion. If you could say emotion, I don't really know if that's the best word, strong desire that you're actually willing to suffer for. So I don't know if anyone saw the passion of the Christ back 20 years ago or whenever that was. Anybody here? Yeah, that was an intense movie. I, we lived in New York City when that came out. And I tell you what, it set the entire city of New York abuzz. Uh, a lot of people were against it. They're going to it. Um, it was, there were people protesting out in front of theaters about it. Um, it was so intense. But the, the movie theaters were literally packed. You, in New York City, which is not a Christian city, it's not like the South, you, you had people just flooding the theaters and we go see it, and there's these two guys in front of us, and man, they were cursing like sailors. I mean, they were using every word that you could imagine, just in their normal language, which wouldn't have been uncommon in New York, but I found it interesting that these guys were at this movie, because man, they just, I mean, it was, it was rough. What they, it was really rough how they were speaking, and I'm just sitting there going, wow, okay, these guys are about to get a, the shock of their life, right? And so... 
they're watching this movie, and you guys know if you were in there, it was, it was so intense, the suffering of Jesus, that it portrayed, particularly the physical aspect of that. And uh, at the end of that movie, those dudes, they were frozen. And I heard one say to the other, man, Jesus, whoa. And they didn't go to Bethel. They, you know, they, whoa, whoa. They were, and I was like, oh, this is powerful. There's something powerful happening in this room of people who even come out of curiosity or to protest it. So we, we thought, Great evangelism, Archie. So we started standing outside the theater, and this was amazing. People would come out crying. Literally, unbelievers would come out just undone by this movie, and we're like, hey, <laughs> can we tell you the hope that's in Jesus? Because you know, the story didn't end there, right? It didn't end there. He was resurrected, and he lives right now. And so, very powerful movie, but why was it called that? The Passion of the Christ. It's the suffering of Christ, of Jesus Christ. And so Jesus pursued us and he was passionate about his pursuit to the point he was willing to suffer death on the cross. He was willing to take all the filth of the world onto his perfection and die on our behalf. That is how passionate Jesus was. And I wanna ask you, I want you to think for a moment, what's your passion? What's your personal passion? Now, I'm not just talking about what you like, because the way we use that word a lot, it's kinda like that's what we really like. I'm talking something beyond what we like. I'm talking about something that we're actually willing to suffer for. What are you willing to suffer for? Um, I mean, there's plenty of things that I like and I enjoy, but while I may enjoy those things, I'm not gonna pursue those things through pain. I mean, for the most part. <laughs> there may be a few things. But passion, I will endure pain in the pursuit. I'll endure pain in the pursuit. And the thing about passion, when you're passionate about something, you can take tremendous setbacks, but you keep going. I mean, you're obsessed with the thing to the point you can suffer setbacks, but you keep going. You know, my wife wants me to become passionate about cooking. <laughs> She's been praying that for years. She's like, I wish... He would become, I'm passionate about a lot of different things and I'll suffer, but she's like, I wish he would become passionate about cooking. Now I did become passionate about cheesecake. And uh, a few of you that have experienced that would probably say it was worth it, right? It was totally, I may, listen, it was like this tall guys. It was, it was amazing. I mean, I went, no, I actually just like cheesecake. I'm not passionate about it. But, but anyway, passion, passion. So success in anything does not always come easy, right? The, it's, it's often the path to success. Anyone who succeeded at something, there was often a, a zigzag. It's, it's not usually, 
most of the time a straight line. It's like a zigzag. And often people who've succeeded at something have to suffer through adversity. I love to read stories about people who they got to the, the place they were going. And, and uh, usually when you read the story, you find out it was not as easy as, as it looked from the outside. They had to suffer through great adversity. They had to dig deep. There were times that they had to push through uh, um, a lot of headwinds. There's a lot of times, a lot of people that, that have really succeeded at something have failed many times. And sometimes you might just see how they succeeded, but if you ever ask them their story, you could probably learn a lot about adversity and about getting up again and again and again, even when, they, when, when you fail. And so, um, so it's not always easy to summit the mountain of your passion. Whatever you're passionate about, whatever is inside of you that you are passionate about, it's not always easy if you're gonna go up that mountain. And if you think it's gonna be easy and you're just gonna quit at it, I would submit that you're not actually passionate about it. Because you're passionate about it, you just keep going at it. Yeah. Amen? Whatever that is. But whatever your passion is, is it aligning, let me just ask you a question, does it align with the kingdom? Yeah. Listen, your passion may be business, that's awesome. I mean, if you're gonna succeed in business, own your own business, I promise you, it's probably gonna be a, zig it's gonna be a zigzag. It's probably not gonna be a straight line. I mean, there's the rare story, it just kinda all happens perfectly, great. But I would say that zigzag can be really important to who you are and your character and fighting through and all of that. Giving you the ability to then handle what God gives you. It's in that zigzag often, in that place of adversity, in that headwind. In that headwind, we learn how to trust God when things aren't going like we would like them to go. But we stay with it. Why? Because we're passionate about it. So I would say, though, if you're in business, um, how is your business aligning with the kingdom? Have you, have you taken what God has put in you, what you're passionate about, and have you aligned it with passion for the kingdom? And that's really, really important that we do that. So I want my personal passions to align up with the kingdom. Amen? passionate for revival. A lot of people want revival. Some people are passionate for revival. I can want revival, but am I willing to suffer for revival? Again, I'm not saying that we pay the price that Jesus paid by any means, but when we begin to align with something, it means anytime I align with something, I have to disalign with something else. So if I'm gonna go after something passionately, it means that I have to give something else up because there's not gonna be room. It could even be a good pursuit that I was after and I say, you know what? I'm not gonna pursue that. I'm gonna pursue this because I'm passionate about this. And if we're passionate about revival, then we have to be willing to suffer for revival. We have to be willing to push other things aside, spend time in prayer, spend time going after God, we have, to, we have to come into that place where we're willing to suffer because we're passionate for it. Amen. Amen. You suffer loss when you pursue something passionately. But you gain something. And kingdom things, when we suffer loss of this, to pursue something of the kingdom, we gain something far greater than the thing that we lost. Paul knew all about that. Paul was pursuing this upward call and he could see all the things that he gave up to pursue it 
And he said, they're just, they're just dung. That's what they are compared to this. They weren't necessarily bad things, all of them, but compared to this, compared to the surpassing value of knowing Christ, compared to this passion to know God, these things that I suffered lost, they're nothing in comparison. They have no bearing compared to the eternal thing that, that I am going after. Amen. Amen. So there's passion. Now you're about to get where I'm really going. I want to talk about compassion. So the Latin root for compassion is again, pati, but you add the com. What that means is to suffer with. Compati means to suffer with. So we've got pati to suffer, compati to suffer with. So compassion means to suffer with someone or something. And, you know, we talk a lot today about empathy, and empathy is a wonderful thing. It's the ability to relate to someone else's pain, essentially like it's your own. You, you, can, feel, you can feel that pain in a sense. You can feel that, that connection of, of someone's in a place of pain. And so when you, when you have empathy, which is really important, you can feel it. But compassion, it takes on another another component, it takes on action. So you could think of compassion as empathy plus action. So compassion gets involved with pain to suffer with. Compassion to suffer with. My passion then takes on action. And so compassion is to suffer with. And Jesus was this ultimate example in that. What did he do? He got involved with us. He got involved with our pain to the point that he took it on. He took all of it on at the cross. He took all of our pain. He entered into our pain and that compassion. And there's so many scriptures that talk about how God is a God of compassion and mercy in the Bible. What's it saying? He's willing to suffer with us. And that's what he demonstrated at the cross. We see this coming out of the other otherness of God, the uniqueness of God, that he was actually willing to suffer with us. This is something that comes out of his character and out of his nature, this, this ability to suffer with. Compassion, suffer with. And I love the story in Luke 10, and I'm going to read it to you if that's okay, of the Good Samaritan. It's a powerful story. I'm just going to read the whole passage to you. And so that's in Luke 10, 29. It says, but he desiring to justify himself said to Jesus, and who is my neighbor? Jesus replied, a man was going down from Jerusalem to Jericho and he fell among the robbers who stripped him and beat him, departed, leaving him half dead. And I just submit to you that that's what sin does to people. That's what the enemy, our spiritual enemy, Satan does he, he beats people, he strips them, beats them, robs them, and leaves them half dead. Yeah. All right? In verse 31, it says, now by chance, a priest was going down that road. So we got, the, we got the spiritual guy going down that road. He saw him, he passed by on the other side. And guys, let me just say this. This is not a, just a, a story for kids' church. 
This is a powerful story Jesus tells us. Verse 32, so likewise, a Levite, worship guy, he came to that place and saw him pass by on the other side. But then a Samaritan, as he journeyed, came to where he was and saw him, and what did he have? He had compassion. He was willing to suffer with this person. And he went to him, bound up his wounds, pouring oil and wine. Then he set him on his own animal and brought him to an inn and took care of him. And the next day he took out two denarii and gave them to the innkeeper saying, take care of him. And whatever more you spend, I will repay you when I come back. Which of these three do you think proved to be a neighbor to the man who fell among the robbers? He said, the one who showed mercy. And Jesus said to him, go and do likewise. So we see here, not only was he willing to personally bandage him up, personally take him to the inn and take care of him, but he also made sure that the innkeeper took care of all that he needed. He, he spared no expense. He didn't put a limit on it. And he said, do whatever needs to be done to take care of them. And I'm going to repay you the additional when I come back. Now that's compassion. He was willing to enter into this person's suffering. I'm sure like the other guys that passed him on the road, he had other things to do. He had important things to do, but he stopped and he took care of this man. Why? Because he was willing to suffer with him. He was willing to enter that place of suffering. And I want to say this, as we enter into someone else's suffering, I'm not saying that we get pulled into the vortex of what that is. We are going there to help pull them out. But unless we feel pain and we're willing to inconvenience ourselves, we will not walk in compassion. The only way that we have compassion, true biblical compassion, is that we're willing to give something up, that we're willing to suffer, whatever that is, our money, our time, whatever that might be. Compassion is powerful. And I would say that anywhere that oppression or injustice or bondage, God's people should be there with solutions. God's people should be standing there with compassion. And I wanna say this, let's don't make uh, social justice a, a political thing. God is about justice. Amen? Let's don't make it that. You got both sides of the political spectrum that different, approach that different ways, but let's don't make it about that as a church. We need to be a people who are standing with compassion and God's mercy, willing to fill in those places where there are oppression or there are injustices. Those where the enemy has beat someone up, has destroyed them into places of poverty. We need to be willing to step in and show God's compassion. Amen? And it's not, again, it's not just empathy. Empathy is wonderful. That's the start of it. It's action. I can feel something. I could walk by on the road and feel something, and then I could just push that feeling aside and not act on it. We need to act on empathy. Amen? It's an expression of God's heart. We need to come alongside someone and, and add our ability to dig deep and pull them out of pain. Compassion releases heaven's resources. It is a releaser. And I said earlier, I wasn't gonna give you a title, but compassion actually ignites revival. I can give you stories. Our church in Palestine, we began to 
reach out. And we were inviting people like into our homes and into our lives. Like I'm talking like really much scary people. <laughs> I mean, honestly, like we're inviting them in. We're bringing them to church. Like if they can't get to church, we're going to go pick them up. They're like, hey, I don't, I don't think I'm coming today. We show up because we saw that these people, they're, they're like in bondage and they can't get up. They can't wait. I can remember many times like the mom, you know, a guy's living with his mom. He's 30 years old and he's depressed in another room. And it's so dark when you walk in there and you're like, hey man, get up. It's time for church. I don't want to get up. No, man, you're coming with me. You're coming, you're coming with me because you know what? God's presence is going to be there today and I'm, I'm going to bring you in. And like just staying with it. Why? Because feeling compassion for this person. And, and I, what I noticed is the more that we did that, the, the higher the level of the presence of God we'd enter into during worship. Because we weren't, we weren't thinking about ourselves so much, you know? That's the thing. We come into worship and we've, we're just we've spent a lot of time thinking about self and even worship can be about what I'm going to feel or what I'm going to get. But, and, and it's wonderful what we feel. It's wonderful what we get, but what, what are, what are we laying down? You know, and I don't want to just be thinking about my, myself all the time, but, and, and I'm going to give you a scriptural basis for this. And we're going to, we're going to land this in this part right here, but Isaiah 58, I'm not going to read the whole thing, but I want to, I want to give you parts of it. If that's okay. You guys with me? Yeah. Yeah. All right. Isaiah 58 says that, that we should um, satisfy the desire of the afflicted. That we should loose the bonds of wickedness, that we should undo the straps of the yoke, that we should let the oppressed go free, break every yoke, that we should share our bread with the hungry, that we should bring the homeless and poor into our house. And when we see the naked, we're supposed to cover him and we should loose the bonds of wickedness. So that's, that passage, that's the fast that God says he chooses. If you want to fast, <laughs> that's a, this is the one that you want to do. I'm not saying there aren't times where we don't eat and drink. Well, we drink, but we don't eat. Uh, but this is the fast that really moves the heart of God, if you want to know the truth, that we would do these things. Because then he says this, he says that, he says, your light will break forth like the dawn. And your healing will spring up speedily. And the glory of the Lord is going to be your rear guard. And it says, then you shall call on the Lord and he's going to answer. It says, your light will rise in darkness and your gloom is the noonday. The Lord will guide you continually and satisfy your desire in scorched places. You will be like a water garden, like a spring of water whose waters do not fail. So I would submit to you that revival ignites compassion. Now, I think these things work together. I think, I think compassion ignites revival, and revival also ignites compassion. Yeah. Yeah. Both of those things work, work together. But in other words, when I'm in revival, there is, I'm, I'm encountering God's otherness in a way that begins to fill me with his nature and his character. It begins to change me. And so I become more compassionate and I go release that compassion. And what happens? More revival comes back. I think a lot of revivals have probably stopped because people didn't take it to the next step, which is compassion. Amen. If you find yourself in a dry place where you're not experiencing God, listen, it's wonderful to get someone to pray for you. Please do that. 
But I would submit to you, maybe you, as a mature Christian, you need to just step out and start showing compassion to someone and you're gonna find that you're like a watered garden according to the word. You're like a spring of water. It's gonna begin to come out of you. So sometimes we try to get answers in a way and we kind of end up in, back in the same thing when we need to get out of ourselves and begin to think about others. Especially if you've been walking with Jesus for a while, it's time to get this. It's time to understand that we're not on this planet for us. We're on this planet to display the compassion of God. Amen. That's why we're here. And it will always be dry if we're not actively showing empathy to others. It will always dry up. You could have, we could have the greatest worship service ever in this building. And if you're not taking out that moment with God and showing compassion and releasing it onto someone else, you know what happens? You'll come back the next week dry. And then we got to do it again. You know, like we got to like, we got to, we got to press up and we get in and we, and it's a cycle, but you go out and show, you show compassion. I guarantee you, you're going to come in this building and you're going to be like, we're not going to be able to stop you. Yeah. <laughs> right. And so compassion, compassion, compassion. There are ministries to be birthed in this room. There are people in this audience. There are ministries to be birthed where you begin to take the compassion of God into places of suffering in our city. There are places, amen. Yeah, go ahead, clap. There are places, there are places of suffering in our city. There are places of despair. There are places of poverty. And the way those places change is that God's people begin to say, you know what? I'm going to go break that spirit of poverty. I'm going to break the oppressor off of this place, this, sex, this people in Austin. And there are ministries waiting to be birthed in here. Amen. There are places that maybe you're not starting a ministry, but per se, like as we think of a ministry, but there are places that he wants you to inject compassion and bring heaven to alleviate someone else's suffering. The best way to alleviate suffering is heaven. Because <laughs> there is no suffering there. There are no tears. There's no poverty, guys. There's no darkness. There's no despair. There's no depression in heaven. The best way we can alleviate it is to bring heaven into a place. Amen? In Colossians, it tells us in verse 12, to put on then as God's chosen ones, holy and beloved, compassionate hearts, first one, <laughs> kindness, humility, meekness, and patience. First one that we're told is to put on is a compassionate heart. We're to put on a heart that is willing to suffer with someone else and alleviate that suffering, to step into that suffering, to do, say, hey, let me get beside you. Let me get beside you. I feel what you're feeling right now, just like I was in that place. And I'm willing to do whatever it takes to help get you out of this because I've got heaven's resources with me and behind me. And so I'm beside you, not to stay in that place with you, but to bring you out, to show you the way out. That's what we are called to do. Put on, and the Bible tells us to put it on, to put on Compassion. Stacy talked about putting on the armor of God. There's other things that we're to put on. 
And one of the, one of these is a compassionate heart, a compassionate heart. I put it on. I don't just wait. I don't just wait until I get the feeling. I begin to put on that compassionate heart because this is something that is God. And I know how to step into God. Why don't we stand? Thank you, Jesus. The greatest power to be released, to be released in the earth, I believe that, I believe this, I don't believe we've seen the greatest revival to ever happen. Amen? You know, I'm not aware of any revival per se when you talk about on a national historical scale that's ever happened in Austin. There's been some movements, but I've never seen one. What if there was a revival of compassion? What if compassion ignited, like Isaiah 58, revival in this city? Amen. Listen, I've been a part of a lot of different moves of God, a lot of different revivals, and there's different ways those came in. I don't want to try to go back to the way that I saw it come in, but I do know this. The principle of compassion is an igniter of revival. It's one of the clearest examples that we have in the Bible to ignite it. What if, as God's people, we could begin to move with compassion across the city? And I want to encourage you something. There are ministries going on here that where there is, people are doing these things, but don't just wait to be invited. Don't just wait for a ministry. Don't just wait for the big outreach that we do. Show compassion. Don't just walk people, whatever they're suffering with, don't just walk by them out on the road. Don't be that person. Be like the Samaritan where you stop. Stop in that moment and ignite revival into that moment. What if we all, you know, there's enough people in this room to change the city of Austin. If we all begin to get moved by compassion. And so, Lord, I thank you that we individually have experienced your compassion for us. I thank you, Jesus that you were willing to suffer with us, that you were willing to step into our suffering, not to stay there with us, but to literally pull us out into heaven. And God, I pray as a people that we would be overcome with compassion. We just put it on right now. We put on the mantle of compassion. And I tell you what, there's authority with that mantle. We put the mantle of compassion on right now, according to Colossians. And God, I pray that our hearts would be moved by what moves you in this city. God, I thank you that your eyes are going back and forth across this city. And I thank you, God, that you have not forgotten those who are oppressed. In fact, it's the very thing that you came for. God, may we as a church, may we as a church align with your passion, the passion to bring healing, to break bondage, to bring deliverance, to break poverty off of this city. God, that we would be a people that break it, that carry revival in that way. And God, I pray that our services would just be an explosion and expression of all the things that are happening out there. God, I pray this building would be full of people who have experienced the compassion of people in this room that the kingdom would be released in power, that hearts would be changed. God, I ask that we would not just live life 
thinking about our experience with you. But God, we would live life saying, how can I bring someone else into experience what I have experienced? God, release compassion on this house. Just open up your hands for a second and just let that mantle, let that mantle come on you right now. The mantle of compassion. Just let it land on your heart. To feel it is to feel his heart. To feel what moves him. To bring mercy and justice into the earth. Thank you, Jesus, for the call that we've been called to. Jesus' name, amen. Thanks for listening to the Sermon of the Week. For more information about this podcast and other resources, please visit BethelATX.com.